however bad you think you have it, it's really not bad in the grand scheme of things. You know, there's a million or, or multi-million people in the world that have it way worse than you. And so like whatever situation you're currently in at that moment, that point in time, it's really not that bad when you really look at it in the grand scheme. Hi, you're listening to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. If you're a real estate investor, this is the podcast for you. Our guest speakers will bring you amazing, intriguing, and unbelievable stories about real estate investing. The stories will be an honest and transparent account about what it actually means to invest in real estate. You'll hear stories that investors don't usually share. Stories about hardships, breaking points, painful truths, and surprising realizations. Sometimes there's a happy ending, and sometimes the story ends very differently than you would expect. So let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host, broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a minute to rate us. Me and my team, who have been uh, working very hard on this show, would appreciate it a lot. You can always go to my website, ellieperlman.com, and listen to the episode and read the show notes. Today, I'm hosting Kevin, a Florida-based real estate investor with over 18 years of experience. He's a top iTunes podcast host of Real Estate Investing for Cashflow and a serial entrepreneur with over $40 million of real estate transactions, 40 million. He has been involved with apartment buildings, single family homes, office buildings, raw lands, condos, and mobile home parks. In addition to his real estate endeavors, Kevin is passionate about giving back and is the founder of several charitable organizations. Today, we'll hear Kevin's story about investing in real estate during the recession and especially about his first mobile home park investment. I'm really happy to have you on the show today. How are you, Kevin? I'm doing great, Ellie. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. And I just realized that I need to update that bio because the transactional volume is much higher than at this point. So I've got to update that. It's actually closer to 100 million now. So Oh, from 40 to 100. Yeah, this is something. We had a couple of really good years here the last couple of years. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's significantly more than that. Yeah, well, you just you just reminded me that I need to actually go in and update that. <laughs> yes, well, 100 million real estate. That's that's very impressive and thank you for making a point about that. So, Kevin owns uh, 100 million of real estate transactions. Well, thank you for that. So, Kevin, do you do you want to start by telling us, you know, how you started in real estate? What year was it and where were you living at that time? Yeah, no, absolutely. It was back. I was I was 19 years old, and I was up in Pennsylvania. That's where I was born and raised. And I was uh, I had just graduated high school. I was in community college. Didn't really. I wasn't um, a high achiever in the academic side of things. I you know I just didn't really uh, have a desire in high school to. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So there, it was really hard for me to get excited about you know putting a lot of effort into school. And ultimately, later on in life, I've learned that if I could go back again, I probably would have done a little differently. In any event. 
when I was 19 in community college, I got introduced to a, a gentleman by the name of David just by accident. I'm not going to drone on about that story, but I was introduced by a guy named David. He was a local real estate investor. He was about 25 years older than I at the time. And uh, he had kind of already, he had been in his career for a number of years, a full-time real estate investor. He owned a lot of single family and a lot of smaller multifamily property. And he lived a pretty cool lifestyle. He uh, you know, drove a nice car, kind of made his own schedule dress really nice. I just, it seemed like he had it all together and ultimately it was due to his, his real estate business and his success as an investor. And I befriended David and got to know him uh, quite well over a couple of months and didn't really understand his business. Didn't, didn't really know what it meant to own real estate. I mean, I, in theory I did, but I didn't really know from a, from a granular standpoint how he really did it or, or what he did or how he made money from. And, uh, a couple months into our friendship, David uh, invited me to a, a boot camp down in Philadelphia, which was about two hours away from where I, I lived. It was a, you know, learn how to basically buy, rehab single family homes and either rent them or flip them. And he invited me because his partner couldn't come and he thought maybe I might have an interest in it. I think he saw maybe a, a young kid with no direction at that point, you know, just going to school to go to school. Didn't really know, know what I wanted to do when I grew up. And so I, I took him up on his offer. I was like, why not? What do I have to lose? And so I went to this boot camp, uh, spent three days there with him and was intrigued in many different ways, enough to where I left there saying, you know what, I've, I've met a lot of people here this past weekend and a lot of people making a ton of money. I still don't really fully comprehend what it is they're doing. But none of them seem, seem any smarter than I, you know, like I'm going to figure this out. I want to do this. This, this is going to be my focus. And so getting back from that boot camp, I, I basically asked David, I said, David, how can I help you? How can I help you with your business? I want you to teach me everything you know, but how can I help you? Right. I want to, I want to do what you're doing and I want to be around you and I want to see the details of your business and how you do day in, day out, what it is you do and by investing in real estate. And, and uh, he accepted, he accepted the offer. And so for over a year, I literally, in between classes and between my, my job at a, at a restaurant that I worked at, I would go to David's office. I would meet him on site. I would, you know, help him with paperwork. I would meet brokers and agents and help him prepare leases. I mean, I was basically there. I was his, his free assistant and I was there to help him in any way possible. And that, that was the start of it. Uh, about a year after uh, being with him, we were still good friends, still partners. And I bought my first property myself and continued on that path, really just modeling what David had done. That was really my first introduction to real estate. Fast forward a couple of years, I built up a, a quite a large portfolio of single family homes and ventured into the apartment space. Uh, this is back prior to 2008, the recession. And uh, that became my world. That became my, my career. I, I moved down to Florida at some point during that span. And uh, that's where I'm at today. And real estate since that point, it has been my entire life. I've never been involved in, other than a few small businesses, but 99% uh, of my existence as an adult has been as a full-time real estate investor. Great, great. And how old were you when you started helping David? 19. Yeah, I was 19, 19. and I bought my first property when I was 20. Mm -hmm. Wow. How did that happen when you're 20 years old? How did you have enough money to buy your first property? Sure. I, I tended bar part-time. Like that was like my job while I was in school. And uh, so I had money saved up uh, from tending bar. And I did lean on David's relationships as far as his private money lenders for my first deal. So I, I literally used all the money I'd saved up. It was like $7,000 to essentially put down uh, with a private money lender. He, he funded the rest, but to put down on a really rough home in a bad section of town, which I probably would never buy again. And that's how I got my start. I basically got in and uh, that private lender helped fund 
uh, most of the rehab costs. And you know, I leaned on all of David's resources. I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't have done it without him there. But so he kind of gave me some guidance, let me lean on the resources and the relationships he had already built. But I did it myself. He wasn't involved. He wasn't a partner in it. Uh, he didn't put any money into it. It was all me, you know, all my credit on the line and made that first one happen. It, it turned out quite well, did a second one and, and so on and so forth. So it took me a few deals before I actually had enough money saved up to where I actually could start holding some property. So I had to literally ha had to keep funding my capital account because I literally used all the money I had to buy that first. Property. But uh, ultimately, I was I was building some momentum and continued forward. And, you know, fast forward today, it's been, I guess, 18, 19 years. And so I've done. Wow, that's that's impressive. How does a twenty-year-old buy the the first investment? I understand now how you did it, but were you afraid to do that? I mean, a twenty-year-old taking on this uh, this adventure that could be even seven thousand dollars for a twenty-year-old. That can be a lot of money. Right? Yeah, it was, it was a lot of money. I I had saved that money for like you know multiple years. I've been been working and doing things since I was twelve years old. I had a paper out. And then I was installing car stereos for my, I had an older brother, so he had a lot of friends that were driving. So I was, I learned how to install car stereos and electronics in my parents' garage. So like I had been like kind of doing side hustles, like my entire, you know, from the age of 12 up until, you know, this point, I've been making money many different ways. Again, tending bar, I made really good money doing that. So I just, I saved as much as I could. I, I've always been not, not frugal. That's probably the wrong word for it, but I've always been conscious about my, my financial decisions, even from an early age. And. Yeah, that's right. I was scared, Ellie. I was uh, scared to death. I mean, all I could think of was like literally just losing that $7,000 and not knowing exactly how to start over because it took me many years to save up $7,000. So I was scared to death. But again, I think having David there, having, I mean, he was a mentor. I mean, uh, there's no other way to put it. I mean, he was, a, he was my sole guidance down this dark path that I knew nothing about. I mean, I didn't have any construction background. If it was up to me, just me and he wasn't around and it was me to deal with a contractor and work through a rehab project, and it was a big rehab project, I'm sure I would have probably failed. Like it would have, it would have been a challenge a little too big to take on without someone there giving me some guidance. Yeah, it went and it worked pretty well. So you're 20 years old when you're making your first investment. You have your mentor who is your sole guide as you described it. And you start buying one investment after another. Things are looking pretty good. When was the point that you made a transition to mobile home parks? Yes, that was fairly recent. That was in the past six years that we made a transition. So what happened is I built up quite a large portfolio of uh, single family properties down here in Florida. I moved to Florida in 2002. So within two years of actually buying my first property up in Pennsylvania, I moved down to Florida. Just really wanted a better quality of life. I don't enjoy the cold too much. I like snow, but I, I like visiting snow and then coming back to the sunshine and the warmth and the beaches. So I uh, moved down to Florida and continued, you know, building my real estate business down here and built up a big portfolio of single family rental properties, a portfolio of apartment complexes. And ultimately 2008 happened. 2008 completely crushed me. And that, that's a sh probably show in and of itself, but lost pretty much everything, lost most of it, and then had to sell a majority of it at the bottom of the market, you know, or what was ever left over had to sell at the bottom of the market and literally had poor credit at that point in time, had no money left, lost my primary residence, you know, that whole sob story that I'm sure a lot of listeners have heard many times, uh, but it was real for me and uh, lost everything I'd ever worked for. It took a couple of years away from real estate, just didn't know what the bottom was or, or how to even start over again. It was really, really challenging emotionally, financially. 
And I started a few other side businesses that were not related to real estate. They were health and fitness related, just a way for me to make money and keep my mind off of uh, really what the disaster that had just occurred. But at some point, you know, that, that burning desire, just that flame kept getting bigger in my stomach, the real estate flame. And in 2011, I started kind of dabbling again. I started you know, talking to, to folks, going to real estate investment club meetings and just trying to get a, a gauge on the landscape because it had changed a lot from 2008, 2011. Things were completely different. It was a different world and knew I wanted to buy apartments again. Like that was going to be my focus. I had no interest in buying single family homes, way too much work to scale that business. And I knew my efforts would be much higher. There'd be much higher reward for my efforts in multifamily. Uh, but during that, during that period where I was kind of exploring this new landscape that, that was created, I was introduced to a gentleman that that owned mobile home parks. I didn't know this guy. I had a mutual friend. He said, hey, you need to go meet Randy. I, I had no interest in mobile home parks at all. So like I wasn't going into this meeting saying, hey, I need to learn about mobile home parks. I just, I love meeting new people. I love networking. This guy uh, had been a successful banker for 30 years and had retired and started buying mobile home parks. I thought that was, you know, intriguing enough. And he seemed like a pretty cool guy. So I had lunch with him and had a two hour lunch meeting. We got talking about his business, mobile home parks. And told him how much I loved apartments and how I wanted to move forward with that business. And he basically uh, piqued my interest in many different ways during that lunch. Because again, I was, I was I had no knowledge about mobile home parks. I knew what they were, but I didn't know the, the investment side. And I left that two-hour lunch meeting uh, intrigued enough to make a commitment to buy a park. I'm going to buy what, a park and say? I'm going to see if it works. <laughs> what did he say? What did he say that, that piqued your interest that, was, that left such a a multitude of factors. I'll give you some of the big ones. He's like, you know, Kevin, it, it's the only asset class that has a diminishing supply. And so there are more parks that get redeveloped every year than that are built. And so like it, it's this barrier to entry is massive. They're not building them anymore. Literally over the last 10 years, let's give you a stat. Over the last 10 years, there are only 97 communities built in the U.S. And so it's a diminishing supply. It creates a massive barrier to entry. So if you can buy communities now, just know that the risk of having a developer build another one down the road is next to zero, you know, of that happening. And so that was one of them. Another one is the lower maintenance costs associated with operating these and managing them versus a you know, a traditional rental or apartment complex. Most of the residents own their own homes. And so they're not calling you with the, the plumbing issues or the, uh, the air conditioning breaking or roof leaking or anything like that. Being an owner of a mobile home park, for the most part, your responsibility is just the infrastructure. So the roads and the common areas and the sometimes the water and sewer lines, but just the, the general infrastructure. And so much different than dealing with mechanicals all the time that that can go wrong in any type of rental that you might own. In addition, that the turnover is a lot lower. You've got homeowners, you've got people that own these homes. And so very few times do residents get up and leave every 12, 12 months ago somewhere else because they have to sell their home. And so it's very similar to a single family home neighborhood where they buy a home there, they might live there for 10, 15, 20 years. And we have some residents that have lived in our communities for more than 30 years. And if they want to move, they turn around and sell it like they would a single family home and so you you never have that that turnover period like you would in like let's say and i'm not i'm not harping on apartments i'm just trying to make a comparison because i know that a lot of folks understand that business and um you don't have the same turnover that you might experience in an apartment to where every 12 months a person moves you have a month downtime you've got a uh, you've got a make ready expense associated with that and you know you got to release it then and that doesn't happen for the most part in our space when they own their own home in addition uh this last, this next point I'm going to make, it doesn't always hold true, but for the most part, if you if you could compare apples to apples, as far as Ellie, let's say that you're looking at a Class C apartment complex in Tampa. I'm looking at a you know a Class C a mobile home park in Tampa. 
you should expect, and again, this all depends on if you're going to buy right and not overpay, and, and you know you know uh, you know how to properly underwrite properties. But you should expect a yield premium on that mobile home park over what you would might receive on that multifamily property. And so there's a little bit higher return uh, opportunity in our space. And so th that's a couple of things. There's one last thing I want to mention that turnover aspect. One thing I forgot to, to make note of with that. Another reason why it's so low and people stay for a long time is these mobile homes are quite expensive to move. The average cost to move a single wide is about $5,000 and a double wide, basically double that. And so most folks that live in a mobile home community, very rarely would ever have that type of money set aside just to move their home to another community. And so most of the time when a mobile home comes in, it never leaves. The only time it leaves is if it's going to get demolished and replaced with a brand new home. So th those are some of the, the key aspects that really, again, piqued my interest during that lunch meeting. I, I walked in that lunch meeting not expecting you know, to be excited or to even spend too much time talking about mobile home parks. So I didn't really have an interest in it, but I, I left there with a commitment to myself that I was going to give it 12 months, learn as much as I could about the space and, and hopefully buy one and either prove or disprove the concept. And that was back in uh, 2012. And here we are, you know, six years later, and that's, uh, that's all we focus in. And we, we own communities in uh, now 12 different states. We just closed two yesterday. So we're in 12 different states and expanding pretty rapidly and haven't looked back since. So I, I want to go back to that moment when that you're actually, you're sitting in, in that lunch and you hear all those great facts um, and, and new knowledge to you about uh, mobile home parks. Is it strong enough to completely erase your, what you felt going through the recession of 2008? When you're sitting there, you, you mentioned that you still had the fire in you. You want to go back into real estate. But sitting there at lunch, did you feel that you're confident enough to get back in the game? Or was, were you still hesitant to do that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I didn't know how to explain it, but I, I completely lost all confidence. So no, during that period, like I, my confidence was gone. I was trying my best to, to rebuild it, but it was it seemed like there was lots of barriers in the way, you know, from, from bad credit to, you know, didn't really have hardly any money left. Uh, you know, it's kind of struggling year by year for the, the, for the prior couple of years. So I sure as heck didn't have a ton of confidence, but what I like to always tell myself, Ellie, is like there's this little extra, well, there's a little exercise I go through. And I, I, I was taught this exercise during this period of time by, by another friend of mine that was going through a similar challenge uh, with his real estate portfolio and losing it at all, is that, you know, however bad you think you have it, it's really not bad in the grand scheme of things. You know, there's a million or multi-million people in the world that have it way worse than you. And so like whatever situation you're currently in at that moment, that point in time, it's really not that bad when you really look at it in the grand scheme, when you compare it to, you know, other folks surrounding you. And so he's like, you know, and there's always a solution to the problem, right? There's, you know, us being entrepreneurs, that's our job. Our job is to take a problem, take a challenge and find a solution for it, right? That's how we make money. We make money by fixing problems. So I always had that attitude, but it was hard to to get through that period of time. I, and I did, I, I ultimately did. And I knew that I, just, I had to make the next deal, whatever I bought. Like I didn't, I mean, I made some money in the side business I had created and I had some money that I, I carried over and kind of supported me for a couple of years from the real estate crashing. But the money I had, I had to make work. Like I had like one shot to do a deal, a deal that needed to be a home run. And so I was scared to death. I felt like it was, it was almost like back to when I bought that very first property, I had $7,000. I felt the same. Like I literally had to make that work or else it would have been catastrophic. And so, 
yeah, I was scared to death. I don't know how else to say it other than I was scared to death. <laughs> well, I, it's totally understandable. I think I, I would as well. And so you're you're leaving that that meeting, that lunch. You're still scared, but something it sparked something in you, and you decide to try and learn about Oval Home Parks. Can you describe to us, uh, to the listeners, and to me your kind of path from that lunch until you made your first, uh, you found your first deal? Yeah, yeah. There was, there's not a lot of education on, on this topic. At least there wasn't back then. Uh, there was really only a, a group of guys that were teaching it. You know, they, there was like a boot camp I went to and um, read as many books as I could, which was like three. There weren't many. But I did lean on Randy and, you know, I, I had him introduce me to some of his other friends that uh, one of his partners actually and a few other people he knew that owned communities. And so I, I really was, I was trying to gain as much information from the the folks that were in the industry as possible. So that was kind of my education. And a lot of it was a trial by fire. I mean, honestly, like, you know, it took me a while to find that first community. We, we passed on a couple that probably they, they would end up being really good deals because we were so scared. We literally backed out of a couple of deals that would have been home runs. Uh, we did land on one finally that still was a home run, but. Why did you decide not to go with them? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I kicked myself in the butt. There's literally two that, and I know who ended up buying them because I, I, it's a small industry that we're in and they killed it. They, they, they were both home runs and I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, a couple of them needed, they needed major infrastructure improvements. There was pretty, the market rents were way below market and everything that we, that I was taught was that you do not have a, you will not have a challenge getting it from where it's at and, and raising, you're doing a big rent increase. You're not going to lose folks. And that's, I know that to be the truth today. But I, I was very uncomfortable. Like I had to be able to achieve those rent increases. Like the one park I walked away from, it was like an $80 a month rent increase, which isn't doesn't seem like a lot. But based on where the rents were at that point in time, it was like a 40% increase because the rents hadn't been raised in like 20 years, a really long wow. time. And so I had to be able to achieve that in order to make my numbers work. And so I thought that was incredibly risky. And I just... I. In my mind, like my worst fear playing out would have been I raised the rent and half the residents moved their homes out, right? Like, I, and I know that that's not the case nowadays. And I know that it's expensive to move their homes, but I was, I had feared me to do it. So I backed out of the deal, two deals just like that one and they, they became home runs. And so I think I just got fed up at some point when the third deal came along. I was like, we're, we're doing it one way or another. It was a, I brought a partner in that I had, had owned a lot of real estate with in the past. I brought him in because I didn't have all the money to do it myself. And we did buy that third one. We still actually own it today. Uh, it's in Atlanta and it was a highly distressed property. We, you know, it had been in receivership for a number of years. We bought it. It was a massive project and put a lot of CapEx into it. Uh, had a terrible reputation, was full of drugs and theft and vandalism, a whole bunch of stuff, bad stuff going on. The mayor hated us. The chief of police hated us. Everyone hated the community and they hated us because we had just bought it. That, that quickly changed once we actually started making improvements and, and you know, getting rid of the drugs and all the other bad things that were draining the resources of that community. But you know, we finally did buy that first park and it, it's been a great performer. And like I said, we still own it today. How do you get rid of drugs and crime on a mobile home park? Yeah, that's a that's a good one. Um, so first off, we just got rid of all the deadbeats that were living there, all the people that weren't. This same thing had been receivership for a couple of years, and so the management company was doing a horrific job. Like they just they they were non-existent, and so we essentially evicted the entire community. I mean, there was there was not one person there that was living there that was uh, worthy. You know, most of them hadn't paid rent for you know over a year. You know, just just bad people. I mean, you know, sex offenders and all kinds of bad stuff going mm -hmm. on. 
So we essentially, none of them were on leases. It was all month to month. So we just did not renewals and we cleaned the place out. That was the first thing we did, but that still didn't eliminate the bad reputation that the community had. So like people were like driving in there at night, dumping trash, stealing air conditioner units. I mean, it was still like the wild, wild west. So what we did is once we finally got the mayor a little bit on our side, because he was really pushing back when we told him we were going to buy this. We met with him before buying it. He basically told us that we were wasting our money if we bought it because he was going to shut us down. So like it was not a it was a very risky endeavor because we thought we were going to get a lot of pushback from the community as we tried to rejuvenate this community, rejuvenate the mobile home park. And we went ahead anyway. Anyway, we did. And so once we started putting money back into it, once we got rid of all the riffraff that was in there, we had a clean slate. We started dumping a ton of money back into it. He saw progress happening. And what we decided to do, we thought this was a good idea. We didn't know how it was going to be received, but we figured we'd do it anyway and just you know test our luck. And so we renovated one of the very front units of the park, one of the ones that were like along the main road, put a bunch of money renovating it, made it really nice, turned the air conditioning, you know, turned the air conditioning on, filled the fridge with waters, and donated it temporarily as a substation to the police department so that their officers had a place to go at night when the police department wasn't open. So they didn't have to go to Dunkin' Donuts or wherever else they go hang out and do the reports. Wow. Do you think that uh, if you started buying mobile home parks back then, do you think that your investments would have been safer during 2007? You know, mobile home parks are, they thrive during a downturn. You know, there's some statistics on how they did during, you know, 2008 to 2011, and they outperformed every other type of real estate. Uh, Self-storage, I think, was second to mobile home parks, but they outperformed every other type of real estate. So the answer is I think we would we would have uh, survived and came out intact, yes. Because at the end of the day, in any given market where we own mobile home parks today, I mean, we're in 11 different states, so you can pick any single one of those, and we're, not, and we're in really good markets in those states. We're the cheapest housing option, but we're not the, the lowest quality housing option. So, and what I mean by that is, our average lot rent in any of our communities, like some are higher, some are lower, but the average is about $300 a month. In any one of our given markets, there is nowhere that you can live, whether it be a single individual or a family, that's not a complete war zone, which I, I don't even think you can live in a war zone for 300 bucks a month, right? And so if you can't afford a $300 a month monthly payment to house you or your family, in any market across you, there's not many other options for you, right? And so during a recession, if people are downsizing, if people are, can't afford their, their apartment or their rental home anymore, like really that last option, and it shouldn't be the last option because it's actually some of our communities are way nicer than even uh, some of the nicer apartment uh, communities in the area. But if you can't afford that, you can't afford anything. Like you live underneath a bridge or on your friend's couch. Like there's no other options for you. And so that was a long-winded answer to your question about do I think we would have done better off if we had owned communities during the recession? And the simple answer is yes. So I think the demand goes up even more when times are bad. And mm-hmm. the demand right now is really strong because the demand for affordable housing, as you know, is huge and it's not being met. So that's brilliant. Yeah. So donated it to them for like a year and you know, it wasn't permanent. We didn't give it to them. But, uh, and we told them that we would, you know, completely cooperate with if they wanted to do, you know, stings or anything else. So we, we literally, we cooperated anything they asked for, we gave them. And the, the challenge for them was it was a drain on their resources. They were always being called to this community because something bad was happening. So our goal was to change that so that, you know, that they're not getting calls there at all. Hopefully not at all in any given month. And that was our way of doing it. And it worked really well. Very quickly, people got the news that, but the police were there hanging out all the time. <laughs> so it, it, it changed very quickly. And uh, today, you know, actually one of the mayor's employees lives in our community, which is quite, quite crazy. So wow. a, a, 
you know, wow. a big 180 degree turn over the last five years there. Wow. That's pretty impressive. And it's amazing that, you know, for someone who was burned during the, the last recession, you actually went for, you know, a type of investment that maybe is not perceived as the safest and was willing to deal with a certain population that I know many people are maybe a little bit afraid of to deal with. And you, you managed to, to turn the property around and, and make it a nicer and a safer uh, community. So that's very impressive. Well, I knew there was a lot of upside there. Like I, like I was comfortable enough in my analysis. Like I knew there was a ton of upside and I knew it was a lot of work. And I had most of the stuff we bought over the years has always been, you know, C-class. I mean, lower end demographic. So I'm very used to dealing with that tenant class. And I know that it's, it's not the mobile home park that's the problem. It's, it's the operator. And this thing was in a great area, great, great neighborhood. But I mean, it was run down. Um, it was just it was a bad operator for way too many years. You know, I like to, I like to give the... Uh, uh, comparisons to listeners on multifamily, you know, multifamily Ellie is that yeah. it doesn't matter how good of a market is. If you got a bad operator, you, you know, you could see a B yeah. class property go very quickly to a C minus or a D class. Right. And so the same thing with the mobile home park, uh, you know, and the quality of mobile home parks runs the gamut as well. So you've got really rough, you know, D class, you know, war zone type stuff that's just full of the wrong elements that no one wants to touch. And then you've got really high end A class, that are very high-end lifestyle communities that have multiple pools, palm tree-lined streets, they have activities directors. I mean, they're not affordable housing. I mean, they're really high-end second homes or, or, or winter homes for people. And then you got kind of everything in between. The same exists in the apartment space, right? You've got really rough D-class and you've got A-class and then everything in yeah. between. And a lot of it really comes down to the operator. Who's the operator and how competent are they? to run that property correctly. And uh, same thing exists in our space. So I like fixing problems. As I mentioned, we all make money by fixing problems. I knew what the problem was there. And I knew that we could, I felt confident in my ability to fix it because I had done it before. And like I said, I needed that one deal. It needed to be a home run. We need to be able to knock it out of the park. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been able to, number one, get our capital back and produce enough profits that we could take that roll into it, another investment. And uh, also that's what happened. We, we hit a home run with that one. Great. That's great. Kevin, I want you to take us back to 2007 or 2008 when, you know, you're a successful real estate investor, you own uh, multiple single family homes and everything is going great. Can you tell us how you, you know, what was the first sign of trouble that you thought that you realized, wait a minute, something is going on? Yeah, no, I, I, you saw the, the sales slow down drastically on homes. It was pretty abrupt here in Florida. So I can't say that like there were signs, at least I, maybe I missed them. And uh, I've got a lot of friends that have been through multiple cycles and, and even they missed them. So, you know, maybe I'm blind, but who knows? You know, so it wasn't like a two year like leading up to, to where we noticed things kind of slowing down. It seemed pretty abrupt. And one of the big things were down, down here in Florida, uh, we had a lot of spec built homes. There was a ton of spec built homes being built you know, by the thousands for bodies that weren't coming here, people that weren't coming at that point mm. in time. And that was back, uh, Ellie, I don't know if you're an investor back then, but back then there was a span between probably like 2004 and 2007 where you know, in Florida and, and Arizona and Nevada, a couple of you know, California, there were you know, homes would get flipped in pre-construction like three times before the home was even completed. It was absolutely wow. insane. I was not involved in that business at all. Like we, we didn't buy that kind of stuff, but that, that was one of the damaging aspects. So what happened is we, we owned a lot of 
existing rental property and a lot of these areas that had a lot of spec homes that just they kept building and building and a lot of these homes stopped selling and a lot of builders to cover their their carrying costs started renting out these homes they rent like brand new three two twos or brand new four two twos for not much more than what we were renting homes that were 20 years old right older inventory and we we started to us we started seeing a uh, lease non-renewal rate start creeping up people weren't renewing their leases and they were moving into these homes and we were having a hard time competing with these brand new homes. I mean, it was, it was nearly impossible to compete with these brand new homes. And that, that picked up steam. And we literally, our occupancy kept going down and down and down. And we weren't having success leasing these things back up. So we were dropping rental rates, dropping rental rates, you know, making concessions. And that was the point, like over a number of months, that was the point I was like, this is not going to go pretty. If this keeps going this in this direction, we're not going to be able to cover our mortgage payment. Like the cash flow is going to be gone. And simultaneously to that happening, the values were like going down so fast. Within a year, our portfolio of single family properties, which was on average, I think we were like right around 63, 64% loan to value was upside down. Within a year, it was upside down. Wow. Literally negative equity. So it just got to the point where we had to make a decision like, uh, you know, our occupancy rate was was lower. We, we, we weren't cash flowing anymore. We were writing checks to make the uh, the debt payments on the, these homes and had to try to, and that, that was back when a lot of the banks, Ellie, weren't, it was so new that a lot of the banks didn't even have workout departments. They didn't have large mitigation departments. They didn't, they weren't doing restructures at all. Within two or three years, they were, because they knew they had to, because it was a much bigger problem than what they anticipated. But so we, 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 did, we had no other choice other than to essentially let go of most of our single family properties. I mean, literally, they, they were upside down in equity. Banks wouldn't work with us. We we're having a hard time leasing. We we're dropping rental rates. I mean, it was just, it was a complete disaster. Yeah, that's a very good point. So Kevin, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. If you could have looked back and the 20 year old Kevin, what would you tell yourself? What piece of advice would you give yourself? I wouldn't change anything because I wouldn't be the person I am today if, if, uh, if I say I'd want to change certain parts of my life, right? It's all lessons and I had really good times, some bad times, but ultimately I wouldn't be who I am today, uh, where I'm at today if, if, if those past years didn't occur. And so, but the one advice I would give knowing what I know today, and you probably, a lot of your guests probably say this, but it's to buy bigger, like, you know, a larger scale, it's just much more efficient operations on the, on, on the management side, on the buy side, everything about buying larger real estate and that, whether it be apartments or mobile home parks or buying more units, it sounds counterintuitive, but it's actually easier. And I look back how much energy and effort I put into buying or to creating that single family home portfolio. I had 122 single family homes and the market crashed. It took so much time and energy to buy those. I mean, like to get really good deals and to to go through that process and and manage them was a nightmare. Managing them, in, you know, across a couple of different counties, it was very inefficient. And it would have been a much smarter path to just buy apartment complexes or buy mobile home parks. So that that would have been the advice. I wish David, he didn't own bigger properties. Uh, if he would have, I, I would hope he would have given me that advice, but he didn't. So it took me a couple of years to actually learn that myself. But yeah, that's what I would tell myself. I'd go back in time. That's a great advice. It's actually the advice that I give other uh, investors or potential investors who want to get into real estate and think, why don't I just start with single family homes and then graduate to multifamily? It's exactly the advice that you gave uh, our listeners. It's, it's exactly what I tell them. Great. So Kevin, where can people find you? Yeah. So best place to find me is either my, my personal website, which is kevinbupp.com. 
That's also where I host. I've got two podcasts I host on a weekly basis. One's called Real Estate Investing for Cashflow, which is a commercial real estate investing podcast. So you can listen to those episodes there. So kevinbup.com or our company website is Sunrise Capital Investors. And so that website is sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. And either one of those you can find me through. You can learn about you know what we do, our company, and uh, also listen to some, some great podcasts as well. All right. All right. Thank you so much. So Kevin, I really appreciate you coming here today on the show and sharing your story, how you survived the recession and transitioned to mobile home parks, which was scary and exciting, but also eventually very successful uh, decision. So, and a career path, of course. So thank you again and hope, you know, to catch up soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Ellie. It's been an absolute pleasure. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.